Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune into DM Radio, the world's longest-running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. gentlemen hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data it's called dm radio yes indeed your host here eric cavanaugh it's another thursday here september september 16th we're burning right through the 13th year of dm radio folks having a lot of fun and the topic for today is near and dear to my heart we're going to talk today about data orchestration what is this fascinating discipline it's uh, fast changing fast evolving and it really came up pretty quickly uh, i think it's brilliant quite frankly because what happened is we moved from the era of batch processing moving small amounts of data here and there overnight typically to this real-time world where data is streaming in all directions all the time the big companies of course are leveraging the daylights out of this technology and they're using it to capture tremendous amounts of data to understand market trends to understand consumers to understand business concepts deliverables what's hot what's not all these fun things are happening right now in real time. Ad tech, of course, is huge these days. The technology stack that leads into ad tech is, is bewildering and amazing. But that's just one of the many different domains where we see data orchestration really taking off. So we've got a whole all-star cast today. Ben Fan from Aluxio is dialing in. We've got uh, Cameron Turner of Ken and Carta and uh, Blake Birch of Shipyard. And Guillaume Erf as well is dialing in from Toronto, I believe, or somewhere in Canada. And uh, we'll hear from him and his Zitan, I believe his company's name. We'll hear from them in the second segment. But let's dive in with uh, one of the first pioneers in the whole data orchestration space, Ben Fan from Alexio. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're doing in the world of data orchestration. Thanks, Eric, for inviting me. Uh, I'm Ben Fan. I'm VP of Open Source and the founding engineer in Alexio. So in Luxio, we build data orchestration and we build Luxio. Uh, uh, by the way, it's also an open source project originated from UC Berkeley EMP lab uh, six or seven years ago. So um, in, the, in the early days, a lot of people using, uh, at that time it's called uh, Taikian at that time, and as a layer for Spark to speed up the uh, Spark performance, uh, Apache Spark. But later on, we built this as a more general purpose file system to support uh, many other computation frameworks, including Spark, including Presto, Hive, uh, MapReduce, and also AI applications. So data orchestration for us is a very um, proper word to describe what we're doing for our users and for our uh, <coughs> applications. 
basically, we are building a new layer in between the computation, including like what I mentioned, Spark, Presto, TensorFlow, PyTorch, this type of things, and also the storage, like uh, uh, S3, HDFS, or some other cloud storage, many different other choices. So this new layer is bridging the computation with this storage by providing users ability to like change the storage without even letting the applications know or like speeding up the data access by prefetching or on-demand caching uh, different by setting different kind of data policies. So that's what we are building. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty cool stuff. So you kind of came out of that Hadoop movement. We've talked about that on the show before. Hadoop is an on-prem thing, or it was designed that way at least. Of course, it came out of Yahoo as the way yeah. that they were indexing the web years ago. And then it was open sourced, and it became quite a phenomenon for a number of years. And a lot of companies invested a lot of money building out these these uh, data centers with Hadoop, HDFS, the the um, what uh, highly Hadoop distributed file system it stands for. And then what they wanted is to be able to leverage the compute power in the cloud. And you saw that opportunity and built Luxio to, to kind of deliver on that, right? Yes, definitely. So uh, Hadoop is a fantastic technology. It's the, basically, to me, it's a, maybe one of the most successful open source projects in history. Uh, everyone in the big data world, they know Hadoop. They are motivated from Hadoop. Uh, the problem is, is now... People are people are moving more and more to the cloud. They're 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 uh, every company, every enterprise I know, they're thinking seriously about their cloud start, their cloud adoption strategy. But many of them have a lot of constraints because they uh, maybe they cannot move this in one shot. They have a lot of constraints in regulation. They have a lot of constraints in the uh, huge giant infrastructure machine they just built in the past 20 years, right? There are a lot of tech debt, a lot of things, complexity there. So there might be a world, we are living in a world, data will be more fragmented and we see this is the where the data orchestration will play, come into play. Basically, you have the data uh, maybe partly in a public cloud or maybe partly in many different, multiple different cloud providers. And also, you may still want to maintain your own on-premise uh, store data warehouse using Hadoop, right? And in this type of world, so basically cloud is is coming into the play as a major player, but also Hadoop will not disappear. Mm-hmm. It will not disappear in 10 years or 20 years at all. So how do you make sure your applications, your infrastructure can work in both worlds? Or maybe you want to leverage the resource in from both worlds. That's where we can help. Yeah, it's interesting. And you're you're focused heavily on analytics, right? On being able to analyze data. So run those algorithms in the cloud of data that was on-prem. It gets pulled into this yeah. sort of intermediary layer, right? Yeah, yeah. Analytics is where we started. As I mentioned, in the early days, uh, this was a still research project called Takia. And at that time, it was a sister project for uh, Apache Hadoop. And, uh, sorry, Apache Spark. And at that time, uh, many users are using Luxio at that time, Taikian, as the off-heap storage, distributed off-heap storage management to uh, like offload certain work from Spark. And later on, uh, so basically that's in the analytics world. Uh, Spark becomes the very popular uh, industry standard actually to do a lot of ETL work. Um, we, and we keep growing in that space. We see a lot of more user cases around like not only just using Spark, but using MapReduce or Hive, and more recently, we see a lot of users using Presto, 
which is the uh, open source another pro- open source project initiated from Facebook as uh, an interactive big data query engine to mm-hmm. leverage Alexio to uh, speed up the query. Like I'm working closely with Facebook to do that uh, to ha- to provide this kind of integration. Uh, so yeah, data analytics is basically where we started. And also in the last year, in the, since in the last two years, I would say, we started to see more users are seeing similar I.O. issues in their machine learning world, in the uh, deep learning tra- deep model training. And mm-hmm. some of these users are practicing using Alexia or data orchestration to solve their I.O. issues for training. Yeah, that's another new type of workload we're seeing uh, emerging in the, in, the, in the community. That's interesting. You know, real quick before we bring in um, Blake, I recall talking to a guy named Foster Henshaw. He was the CTO of Teradata years ago, and then he became the CEO of a company called Datopia. But uh, he was telling me, again, this is 15 years ago, that uh, I.O. was still a really difficult challenge to solve. I think we've come a long way since then, but uh, you're talking about input-output, literally, I.O. Tell us a bit more about that and what's changed in the last couple of years. Like, how has that been, I don't know, cracked the code or... How does it work these days? This that's what it been. Sorry. Oh, it's it's to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting observation that like uh, uh, during the past, like in the past decades, we see definitely all kinds of new technology in the hardware or in the software in the system to solve all kinds of issues from compute to uh, to to I/O. And one of like, for example, people are using G- uh, one of interesting is people are using GPUs. This kind of like a, a hardware with a, a massive amount of parallelism to uh, to process 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 their computation. And and this this kind of workload is typified by uh, GPU use uh, for using GPU for machine learning for uh, model training. And um, <laughs> the result is because now we are having this super powerful uh, monster hardware, they can just process a much higher amount of data per second. Mm-hmm. That means we need to come up with a better I.O. solution to uh, keep this trend, like to keep feeding them. I talk a lot of users and they, the complaint is, my GPU is too powerful, <laughs> too powerful to consume the data I read from network, like from my cloud provider, or from my... Uh, from my from my data data center, and how do we solve this problem, right? So because just because and this problem is getting worse because they're they're upgrading to the new model of GPUs provided by Nvidia or by Intel, by different providers. Yeah, so the I/O problems will be just become more and more in this kind of scenario, and and that's only like maybe in you may think this is only for the data training for for machine learning. And we also see an interesting trend that people are start we, people are starting to use this type of hardware, specialized hardware, to do analytics to do analytics too, like running Spark or running uh, MapReduce, this type of work on GPUs. And this we're just getting this uh, computation power higher and higher. How to keep in keep them in the same pace is a really a serious problem for industry. It's, it's basically an impedance mismatch. Yeah. Right, isn't that how they refer to it in the business? It's an old database problem, but now we're seeing it in other areas. And like you say, the the, the GPUs are so powerful. They're like, okay, give me some more. Like, oh wait, you need more already? Hold on, let's bring it in. Yeah. yeah, we've seen that problem over the years. All right, let's bring in Blake Birch next from Shipyard out of Austin, Texas. These days, Blake, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, what you folks are working on at Shipyard. 
Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. I'm Blake Birch, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Shipyard. Uh, Shipyard is a data orchestration platform that helps data engineers easily connect their tools, automate their workflows, and build out solid data operations uh, from day one. Our biggest priorities are trying to break down the barrier to entry that we see in uh, data orchestration, where it's very difficult and technical to get things set up, automated, and put into production. At the same time, we're trying to eliminate the fragmentation that we see happening in the modern data stack, where you have different tools for ingestion, transformation, dashboards, machine learning models, so on and so forth that aren't talking to each other. So you end up with results where you might be continuously delivering bad data to stakeholders, or you might end up in a situation where you don't know why something broke and you spend days trying to figure it out. Uh, we're really uh, emphasizing uh, our platform as a fully hosted uh, solution. Uh, that means you don't have to have DevOps or infrastructure to get up and running with it initially. We have well over 50 low-code templates with things like dbt snowflake bigquery uh, to make sure that you can easily move data between those services without reinventing the wheel uh, but just like traditional data orchestration tools you can run your own code like python or node um, and uh, sync that directly from git to make sure you're staying uh, up to date and while you're building out workflows with each of these different templates or your own code uh, we handle the error handling automatically uh, and you can make sure that you have visibility end-to-end -end of how your data is moving and get alerts as soon as something breaks so you know exactly uh, what needs to uh, happen and also you can prevent that bad data from being delivered downstream. Hmm. That's very interesting. So how do, you, how do you do that? I mean, I understand how airflow works. I understand dealing with workflow, but how, how are you grabbing data? How are you then passing data on? I mean, you're basically an orchestration platform right so it's it's your job to manage the distribution of that stuff efficiently but how do you actually do that yeah, so the distribution, uh, it's a little bit of secret sauce, uh, trying to figure out how everything works on the back end. But our goal is that you shouldn't have to actually think about the infrastructure when you want to build these solutions. Uh, so we do have a high level of concurrency uh, to where we're looking to see, okay, these jobs are scheduled at this time from existing data. They typically use these types of resources. And we make sure that we're able to scale up effectively to kind of handle the demand without you having to worry uh, about uh, everything that's going on there. In terms of how we actually like access the data, uh, uh, all those low-code templates that I mentioned, we actually open source uh, all the underlying code. So you can see under the ho hood how everything is working. Uh, they're all built off of uh, simple Python scripts. Uh, but our goal is that a lot of the integration that needs to happen, 80% of the work is just super monotonous integration code uh, that teams shouldn't necessarily have to s uh, spend time figuring out how to grab the data from one service and how to deliver it to another. We want to make that very simple so you can focus on the proprietary uh, solutions that you need to build with logic uh, that's specific to your business. And that's interesting. So mostly by API, I'm guessing, or webhooks, yeah. or how does it actually work? So you basically, if I understand it correctly, you will get deployed into a certain business, and then you, you do some sort of a network scan or something to figure out what, what, what data is going where, you know, who, who's accessing which kind of data at what time, what does that API look like? And then you start to manage that. I mean, in the old days, it was batch files that were done manually, mostly, or at least scheduled manually. Mm -hmm. But this sounds much more dynamic. Is that right? It's definitely a whole lot more dynamic. It's still uh, initial custom setup, wherever you need the 
data to be pulled from. Uh, you set up the individual tasks and workflows need to be handling that data. Uh, but mm -hmm. the entire thing is uh, visually uh, managed, uh, so you can easily uh, update and change uh, the workflows over time uh, as they need to update and see exactly where data is moving along, how mm -hmm. it performed every single day um, after another time. And to answer your initial question, yes, uh, it's mostly working with each of these tools uh, via their existing packages or their existing APIs and making sure um, that they're talking to each other uh, without you having to do a lot of the heavy lifting. One of the things that uh, I talked about on this show 13 years ago was that I would call it stop the madness of ETL because what you'd have in these large organizations is that year after year, more and more people wanted, I want this data now, I want that data. And so you have these batch windows just stacked up day after day after day. And there was no real strategic view of everything. In other words, you were probably moving the same data 12, 15 times every week, maybe, in different scripts and different jobs, but you couldn't see, you couldn't understand the big picture to be able to optimize all that. And if I hear you correctly, what you've done is able to achieve that vision of optimizing the flow of information such that you're not engaging in all these redundant exercises. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And all of our templates, we tried to solve this by giving you visibility into where and how they're being used in the organization. So if someone sets up a new uh, query to run against Snowflake, you'll know where it's running, what workflow it's attached wow. to, and be able to check the status over time. And you can do that with your own like custom code as well. You can build those templates and see how they're used. So it's a lot better structure for understanding how things are running and making sure that your data operations are running seamlessly. That's really interesting. I mean, you guys have solved one of the, the harder challenges that I've been scratching my head about for years now, and that's a pretty serious deal. Now, what kind of throughput can you can you handle? We've got 60 seconds to break. Real quick, like how much data movement can you handle? Uh, really, as much as you're able to uh, throw at us, um, it's something where uh, we're, we're trying to make sure that we are constantly uh, putting the right sort of infrastructure in place for each job and each individual. So whether it's uh, just a few hundred gigabytes of data or whether it's terabytes of data um, being processed, um, that's absolutely something that we're able to handle. Wow. That's pretty cool. Shipyard. I like the name, too, Shipyard, but you know, I've lived through it in a few <laughs> Port cities, so you know it comes in handy. You got to move all that stuff around, man. You got to orchestrate it is the key, yeah. because otherwise, I mean, if you do it in an optimal fashion, I'm going to guess it takes ten to thirty percent of the effort and time that it would otherwise, because there is so much redundancy. Well, folks, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. You're listening to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called the M Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio talking all things data orchestration. We heard from Ben Fan of Aluxio and Blake Birch of Shipyard in the opening segment. Next up, Cameron Turner of Kitkin and Carta. VP of Data Science over there. So Cameron, tell us a bit about what you're doing and, and where you see some interesting opportunities or challenges in data orchestration. 
Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot for having us on, Eric. This has been a great conversation. I love all the points that Ben and Blake have made uh, so far. And as you're describing it, 13 years, that's a, a long time. And when you put data orchestration on top of that timeline, uh, I can think of a lot of major milestones that we've passed through. But um, I'll tell you just briefly about uh, Kin and Carta. We're a global digital transformation consulting firm. We're publicly traded on the London Stock Exchange um, with a strong presence across the Americas. Um, we exist to build a world that works better for everyone. And we've added the everyone recently with our B Corp certification. We're finding a lot of interest in tailwind in ESG projects, sustainability, and so forth. And data is um, dead center at all of those conversations. So it's been um, a really fun year so far, um, helping the likes of HP, Starbucks, PepsiCo, Adobe, um, Global 1000 companies, UK and EU, uh, to help to think about data in light of how uh, they can better serve their customers, their communities, and so forth. Um, you know, when I think about orchestration, um, and we were having this conversation on on ETL, it's sort of like, you know, typesetting was in the beginning of publishing. And there were whole careers around just ETL, you know, it was, and you literally sort of had to put one piece of data in at a time. And then if you got one wrong, you sort of had to scrap everything and and start over, make manual adjustments, and 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 you can make a career out of doing that. And I think what I'm I'm hearing from everyone on this uh, on this meeting is, um, you know, really that there's opportunity to make things more agile, more flexible, more extensible, um, and all the solutions that we're talking about here um, apply to that. We sit, um, you know, we have uh, you know some of our own technology. We try to take out redundant paths. We're about to make a an announcement um, around automated ML. Um, but really, we're the, the folks that are working on the solution side. So we would work um, with an Alexio or a shipyard to bring solutions into our shared clients um, and work on the last mile of solution building all the way out to value realization and measurement. Um, so that's been been kind of our, our, uh, our MO. Um, you know, orchestration, I think, is a, is a, a great, you know, a, a great term, a moniker for this space. You know, we talk about harmonization as well. And for anyone else who's interested in music, I think it's great that now we're talking about, you know, how to make the data sing. It used to be about torturing <laughs> your data until the point that you can make it top. Uh, and now now we're, we're trying to, to enable and democratize data and make it available to more and more people to do more things inside of organizations. Um, so orchestration, when you bring you, you boil it down, it's really about, um, you know, taking the different silos of business and taking the different silos of data sources and enabling organizations to blend those together in a way that can create better signal. We build a lot of uh, AI products for our clients. Um, and so AI is not magic. It's, you know, systems that basically consume history and from that history try to make good explanations, good predictions, good recommendations uh, for, for the business and for outcomes. Um, and so, you know, that can range from, you know, all things around supply chain and efficiencies all the way out to, um, you know, we work with healthcare. So looking directly at patient outcomes and survival rates and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, if, if AI is about consuming a historical signal, um, orchestration is all about um, expansion. How do you gather more signal from a broader set of sources to get increased accuracy, better coverage, and in the um, you know in the context of a, a B Corp, how you do that in a socially responsible way that doesn't leave certain parts out, even if they're not adequately represented in the data. So we could have probably a whole other show um, on that topic, but we really look at orchestration through that lens of what can you do through data inclusivity and data democratization 
good data governance and having those systems in place. And a lot of times, um, you know, we start from from nothing um, in that regard. The the most common thing we hear from every client, and it doesn't matter what size company, is that what you're describing sounds amazing. And I, and I wonder if if Ben and Blake, um, you know, might might be able to relate to this. Is we love what you're describing, but we're just not ready. You know, our right. systems aren't organized enough. Our data is not complete. It's a mess. I'm embarrassed to show you this, you know, beige box <laughs> under someone's desk that has a critical database <laughs> that we use to run the business. Um, And and that's universal. And so, you know, orchestration has to speak to the periphery of data assets and how you bring that periphery into a data strategy um, and not just uh, work on the common denominator data. Um, And uh, when you think about data harmonization, that's that's a critical challenge because it's not uh, it's always fuzzy matching. You don't have um, even, uh, you know, good alignment around basic concepts like what is a customer? That might mean something very different in your CRM than it might mean in your customer service data versus your finance data. Um, so being able to align those things in a way that makes sense to the businesses um, is really um, is really critical for us. Yeah, and you know, just for context here, we're talking about visibility. Uh, Blake was talking about that earlier, and and Ben and yourself as well. Just to date myself, my first job out of college was at a small town newspaper right when desktop publishing was beginning, and we had a linotype machine for the headlines. So we did paste up. We would literally type stuff up, and you'd have a linotype machine where you would type the headlines, and there was no transparency at all. Like You couldn't see anything. You had to type it exactly correct, and then it would print out this little thing that you would then paste on there. To then go shoot the negatives on a stat camera and then take that to the printer to actually print up your newspaper. I mean, I'm talking no visibility. So you want to make sure you got that right because the paper was expensive, right? And the stat camera, this thing is like the size of a room. It used to like go, just go 38% on this little piece here. I mean, oh my God, how things have changed. So that's kind of like the old way of data is, you know, you get out your floppy drive and, you know. But to your point, even to this day, you've got gray boxes under desks that are, that's the production system, right? I I often use use real quick, I often use this expression by um, William Gibson who said the future is here already. It's just not evenly distributed, which I love. But I always point out the corollary. The corollary is also true, meaning the past is all around us. It's everywhere, right, Cameron? Yeah, I think that's right. Ben made a great point earlier about the technical debt that comes with, um, you know, Hadoop implementation. And we see a lot of those multi-million dollar investments on Hadoop where um, you're exactly right. The the access and the benefit hasn't been even, evenly distributed across the organization because the operation um, and maintenance of those systems ha- comes with a huge um, sort of barrier to entry for certain parts of the organization. And increasingly, I think people are saying, you know, enough of having just the specialist in the center providing data services, let's open it up and have data be uh, something that's enabling our entire organization. So maybe the the modern version of the the manual, uh, you know, paste and, and camera ready development, um, you know, is are these Hadoop systems that now um, sort of sit there and tend to be um, fairly, uh, you know, brittle when not curated and managed through orchestration systems like the ones um, the other gentlemen um, on this uh, on this presentation are, are are speaking to. 
Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that, that's the fun part, though, for being a consultant, right, is you, you kind of get to roll up your sleeves and look at these different environments and find new ways. And let's just say, I'm guessing they are target-rich environments, right, Cameron? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, overall, a lot of the opportunity sits in, um, you know, point Blake made around repetitive action. You know, when we see organizations doing the same thing again and again or quarterly processes, data ingestion, uh, manual data governance, um, you know, these are, are things that, by definition, computers were meant to solve. When you do something more than three times, you start to wonder to yourself if you've had any, uh, you know, a single programming class in your life, why am I doing this again? Why shouldn't I just script this? And I think that's where, you know, when orchestration really lights up, um, there's a lot of power. We're starting now to see an evolution. We talked, you know, five and ten years ago about insights and enabling an organization with insights. We're starting to now see um, sort of the equivalent of what you might call self-driving cars in the mm-hmm. data space, where there's certain scenarios that you can pick out and say, this is something that's very prime for automation. We still need to have our hand hovering over the steering wheel. We're not yet to the point of full self-driving. Um, you know, human in the loop is is required because of the challenges that you'll have with bias and what can happen through full automation. But there are some scenarios where we're moving up that pyramid from insights and data-driven business to data actually affecting the business directly. Um, and of course, areas like marketing and advertising, um, this has been there, precision medicine, this, these are concepts that have been around for a while. Um, but you can think of, you know, go back to that rule of thumb around repetitive action. We start to see the same action occurring again and again there is an opportunity to up-level um, sort of the AI capability in that organization to take on more of that. But it yeah. all goes back to the beginning, the quality of the data, how well it's orchestrated, how much coverage uh, you have. Yeah, well, that's a great quote, too. You just had, let's bring in uh, Guillaume Herve from Zitan. That's out of Montreal. I misspoke. It's not Toronto. It's a much more interesting and beautiful city, Montreal. Right? So, uh, and uh, that last line, though, Cameron, where you said, uh, I'm doing this again. Why don't I script this? Like that's that's every automator's dream, right? And like you think of how many things do I do time and time and time again? But automation is hard. Automation is difficult because there are always exceptions. We had a show a couple of weeks ago with a guy from Alpha Software, which has been around for about a thousand years, and uh, he was joking. He called it the wrinkle. Like that's the hard part. There's always some exception in the workflow that you didn't think about that's really important. How do you get around that? And that's usually what stymies the efforts. That's usually what stymies AI, which is a good segue for Guillaume from Zitan. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're doing in the space of data orchestration. Sounds good. So thanks again, Eric, for having me on board here uh, with this panel. I'm learning a lot just listening. Uh, and uh, so my name is Guillaume. I'm the CEO and co-founder of, uh, of Zatane, where we help companies bring more AI projects, specifically in the area of machine learning and deep learning. Uh, to comp- to completion and to deployment with confidence. I mean, the way we look at it is that your data is trying to tell you a story. Uh, and uh, through traditional BI techniques, sometimes it's very hard to uncover what that story is. Through uh, AI, there's a, certainly a way to uh, to maximize the value that you can get from that data. And Zatin allows you to see that story. But not only that, it allows you to tell the story to non-technical business decision makers who do not understand BI or AI speak, uh, but understand operational risk. Um, so despite all the hype in AI, a lot of projects do not get deployed uh, in industry because there's a lack of trust in a lot of the algorithms that are being developed, uh, either by the public, the consumer, or by decision makers that, uh, that just don't understand how and why this particular black box works the way it does. 
so at Zetain, we do two things. We've developed a software that allows uh, data scientists, ML engineer teams, and companies to uh, develop uh, um, uh, AI solutions more effectively uh, by limiting a lot of the guesswork. So what we do is we allow you to visualize what your AI does. We completely uh, render the process transparent where you're able to see the algorithms in an object uh, easily understood. Uh, we like mm. to call it human understandable so that the AI uh, folks can more rapidly pinpoint uh, where things are working or not working, either in the model or in the data. Mm. Uh, and we also do a lot of consulting work with companies uh, that are looking for us to use our tools. So we, own, you know, we eat our own dog food, uh, and that is what helps us really improve the platform day in and day out. So we do work on projects. Because of the nature of the business, the people that tend to want to understand risks are people that are dealing with, uh, with you know, areas of AI deployment where the consequence of failure is high. So consequence can be somebody gets hurt, you know, an autonomous vehicle doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Uh, consequence can be I have a robotic assembly line and it's making decisions that are wrong that are costing me, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, downtime or, 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 or uh, materials. So your supply chain issues, or it could be medical decisions as well. So we tend to focus in the areas of higher risk. Uh, we come at it, uh, you know, from a data orchestration perspective, we certainly have seen our fair share of uh, data issues as it pertains to, uh, you know, what kind of data is being provided to the AI algorithms to allow it to train properly. So for people that are not familiar, uh, you know, BI will give you well, in theory, well, uh, you know, well gathered, well, uh, uh, well labeled, well um uh, quality assurance QA type of data and then the algorithms will be trained using that data to come up with some sort of a recommendation so if you give an algorithm bad data or often what is called biased data which is also a big problem the algorithm is only as smart as how you trained it and it's only as smart as the data you gave it and so there are plenty of examples out there uh, around uh, an HR algorithm that is biased uh, towards how it, it recommends hiring practices or, uh, you know, a, uh, a, uh, a medical imaging algorithm that makes the wrong recommendation of a particular disease based on poor data. So I'd like to talk about that when we get back because I do think it is an important part of the AI orchestration uh, side of the story. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, explainability, that's the, the, the buzzword with AI these days. And to explain to our audience what that means, basically an explainable AI algorithm is one, as the name would suggest, which can be explained. <laughs> How did it come up with this answer? It can be difficult with deep learning modules because you have these hidden layers and it becomes very, very complex and very hard to understand. It's actually a company, another company out of uh, Canada called Darwin AI. Or they use it. You may know about them. They use a deep learning model to understand your deep learning model, which is pretty fun. They say, "Okay, well, here's how it's actually working." Like, "Oh, wow!" Anyway, don't touch that. That will be right back. You're listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Kavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back once again to DM Radio, talking all things data orchestration. And uh, like most topics, we can talk about AI in the context of data orchestration. We were just talking to Guillaume Herve from Zitan out of Montreal. 
And uh, we left off on explainability, which is huge. I was talking to the founder of Monitor the other day. He made a really interesting comment. He said, I think explainability is going to be a commodity in the future. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty bold prediction. But what do you think about uh, about that and explainability in general for AI? Yeah, so so I think when we think of explainability, uh, we think of it as something that's come up in the last few years because AI really started as simple statistics where it wasn't too complex or complicated to explain to somebody what was going on inside that particular recommendation uh, algorithm. But as you move towards machine learning and deep learning, where, as you said earlier, the algorithms are more complex and harder to understand, then explainability becomes an issue because if you're going to release something that's going to have a material impact on your business or on the consumer, you want to be able to explain it. In the world of AI, that means being able to explain exactly how the data that was used to train your algorithm is arriving at a conclusion that you can turn around to either your decision makers or to the end user and say, you can trust that it's not biased in any way. You can trust that it'll be reliable. You can trust that it'll be uh, repeatable. And more importantly, not only can you explain why it works, but what business people will ask you is tell me when it won't work. When oh, will wow. I have to cover my bases? When will I have to tell the public that in this case, you've got to be careful? And so black box solutions have come out. You've named a couple earlier. But the problem is they're offering you another black box to explain right. the black box problem. <laughs> so right. the way we've taken uh, to the problem is we, because of our, so our IP is our own IP, so we're in a deep tech sort of a, a situation as the thing, we've been able to completely build the front end and the back end of the platform so that people have access fully to the models. And of course, we don't expect you to be navigating in a large model and, and phishing. And so we po- pinpoint people in the area of where their data and or their algorithm may have outliers, may have blind spots, may have uh, data that is uh, you know, un- unused. Uh, you know, we call them dead neurons, if you want to use the brain analogy. Uh, and, and, and when you get to a deployment of AI on the edge, which you were referring to a little bit, whether it's on a cloud or on a hardware platform somewhere, you know, optimizing that model becomes really important. So explaining what parts of the model you can prune off and not lose reliability and accuracy becomes very important as well. And so that's how we look at explainable AI. We put it back in the hands of the companies. And because it's a very human understandable software that we've developed, the AI specialists, so the data scientists and ML engineers can actually show their models to a business leader or to a doctor or to you and I, and basically explain to them how the algorithm is thinking and which parts of the data it's actually using to make a final decision. I mean, if you look at a dog and a cat example that's often used in AI, you know, the, the algorithms actually only use a few points to differentiate right. between a dog and a cat. We think that's that, right. you know, it's looking at the whole aspect of uh, 3D animals. It's not. And so it's important when you start thinking of AI that way that you understand which parts of that picture is being used to make a critical decision, if it's computer vision or data, if it's an NLP type of a, of, of a solution. So that's how we look at explainability, and that's why it's becoming so important because data is massive. We're now not drinking from fire hoses anymore or even right. uh, you know, water bombers. We're, we're, we're drinking from tsunamis of 5G and, and you know, uh, uh, you know uh, high computing. You talked about GPU uh, just increasing you know, on a daily basis. And so that data is coming at us in a manner that is really humanly impossible to, 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 to cope with, and that's where AI is going to help us. But it's only going to help us if we can trust it You'll only be able to trust it if you can explain it to the non-AI people. 
and that's, that's right. the heart of the problem that we're dealing with. Uh, yeah, that's that's a great point. Let me bring uh, Ben Fan back in from Aluxio to comment on that. Yeah, this is great to allow us to kind of weave together a nice cohesive show because what Guillaume just pointed out, right, is that you want to be able to explain the AI such that the business people can understand it and then believe in it. And this is what I've found in general. I mean, people can be skeptical about something, but if you can explain it in fairly simple terms, then they're okay with it. Like, oh, wow, that's actually great. And when you can, when you can tie the decision to the data point, well, guess what? That's when people realize the value of the data and of getting the data right and having the data there. So, you know, we've talked about this over the course of the show. There is so much more information you can grab. I mean, alternative data, we talk about a lot on this show, third-party data. There's mountains of it out there. And if you can trust it, like geolocation data, which gets sold from from phone companies where you are at some particular point in time, or at least where your phone is. Maybe it was stolen and it's not you, it's someone who stole your phone. But uh, nonetheless, it's extremely useful, but you have to be able to get access to it. And that's data orchestration, right, Ben? Yeah, so that's a very good point. Actually, I learned this. I really enjoyed the conversation here. I think this is actually deeply tied to what we, uh, at least like we, what we think we can do in the future or like in the near term. Uh, for example, like we're building this data virtualization or data abstraction on top of that. So once you have an indirection or have this abstraction, you can add a lot of functionality on top of that. For example, the, tra- uh, the ability to track data, how the data is used, whether this is the proper use of this piece of data for data training, and how this, like uh, we call this the lineage uh, in a lot of different contexts. Uh, the lineage of this data, how it's used across the entire data pipeline. And in, in, in fact, like uh, as, uh, as Cameron said, this is the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. I see certain enterprise that already move they're already in the move of like tracking a lot of different things, so they can explain much better how data, like in terms of data and in terms of privacy, in terms of like how the this is to explain the model. But like in 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 reality, uh, we are still far away from having very easy solution to like in the, in the entire industry today to provide uh, like end users a very easy way to do this from technical side. And I do think this is very valuable if the industry is moving that direction. And I'll throw it over to to Blake to comment on as well, because you're another key part of this process, right? Managing the data feeds for all these different workflows. I mean, would you refer to that as data ops? Are you more data ops, data orchestration, or a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both with data ops kind of being a new term for trying to figure out exactly where the data is going, how it's being used, the testability, the the lineage of everything. And I I think the explainability uh, part of the equation really comes down to knowing where your data came from, where it's being processed, exactly how it's being used. But data orchestration is more than just seeing how the data initially gets into the systems initially. It's also being able to actively act on that data and try out multiple different like machine learning models off the data and see what the performance is like, or being able to uh, interface with different APIs uh, to try and like automate uh, any sort of like marketing programs that you might be running, or internal uh, like people ops or HR uh, problems. Those are uh, definitely uh, better ways to look at uh, data orchestration in a more holistic fashion um, to start seeing how your data is being used across the organization. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And Cameron uh, Turner from Canon Card, I'll throw it over to you. These are all the pieces that need to get put together, right? And I try to explain to people that this next generation of technologies that's coming out, like Aluxio, like Shipyard, like Zatan, etc., they are just head and shoulders above the older technologies, in part because they were, they were designed 
with the tools and capabilities we have today, which are vastly more powerful than they were 20 years ago. Right, Cameron? Yeah, and we're deploying into a much more complex environment. I mean, if you can include mm -hmm. it in the uh, concept of explainability has to also now be auditability. We have a compliant requirements on deploying anything. So we move from explaining just the AI um, to also needing to be able to explain the provenance source and history and security of the data that's being fed. So just using tools to explain what's in the data is often as valuable as the explainability of the AI itself. The challenge for us is that as we go in to replace rules-based systems or expert-built tools that are highly auditable because there's set points and there's decision trees that define protocol, these systems can adapt. Um, you know, you might get this a different output for two different patients from the same model, and then through automation, you might have models retraining themselves. So the possibility of things going awry becomes an exponential problem versus something that can be tracked and, and audited and explained in a linear fashion. Um, so that's that complexity, I think, is both uh, what gives all of the power to the AI systems, but it also brings a lot of challenges in it. It sort of requires governance and uh, orchestration in order to achieve that. Yeah. 60 seconds left uh, before on the live show. Guillaume, I'll throw it over to you. Uh, it helps to be able to see across these systems and understand the risks, right, real quick. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we're seeing in all the AI projects that we've worked in different industries is the link back to, uh, so there's a couple of risks uh, that, that need to be linked into. One is people are, are forgetting, and I think uh, Cameron just brought it up, that a lot of these AI solutions are now running in real time. So not only do they need to work when you're deploying them, but then you're feeding them data constantly for them to const, you know, continuously improve their accuracy and the predictability and their recommendations. And so with that comes a whole supply or a whole workflow of risks mm -hmm. in terms of data orchestration, quality, availability, reliability 24-7 in some cases. And so that orchestration is no longer go and look at my data pools and give me good data so I can play with it.